meetings and not exciting faculties and events and stuff like that. And if you can do it without the music, well, that's hard. Okay. What else? Yeah. It's our job to teach our children the why, and the only way to do that is to teach them how to feel the spirit. Yeah. That's our most important job as parents. Right. See here, the thing that I fear is that there are an awful lot of people that get caught up in kind of what I call uh, checklist Mormonism. And that is that we're good at checking off the boxes. How are we doing? I am doing this, and then I'm doing this, and then I'm doing this. And we get caught up in the motions of it. But how many members are running around at any given time doing the dance but not feeling the music? Again, it's a, and so the first time that somebody offends or the first time that they don't do well in a calling or the first time that they struggle, now the dance has become really too hard and I'm out of here because I never really did hear the music in the first place. <coughs> Tough one. Okay? Um, and, and in a sense, part of, part of what we want to be able to talk about today is that that is... That is really what was going on uh, as we start talking about the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, now this is, this is kind of fascinating because Jeremiah is going to be our bridge <coughs> from uh, King Josiah all the way to King Zedekiah and the fall of Jerusalem. He's the bridge. He will span four, prophets, four kings. Uh, but he will be the, the prophet that is there when Nebuchadnezzar rolls through and burns down the temple and levels the city. And Lehi is leaving. I mean, we're right now at Book of Mormon time with Jeremiah. Uh, but there's a lot that goes on with Jeremiah that you may not realize. Some things, so some things we need to know. First of all, Jeremiah was a Levite priest. Uh, where, where Isaiah was raised in the, in the court of Hezekiah, or Lehi was kind of a rich merchant man, we think, who became a prophet. Jeremiah is just kind of the, uh, he's kind of the John the Baptist prophet. He is, he doesn't ever get married, doesn't have kids. He spends most of his, uh, a lot of time in prison because they keep locking him up. And sometimes it's in dry cisterns and sometimes it's in really muddy, mucky holes. Uh, and in fact, he's still sitting there in prison when Nebuchadnezzar comes through and has to let him out. So he just is kind of the, the, the rough prophet. So he's a Levite priest. Uh, he was called in the 13th year of Josiah. Um, now that's kind of important because let's go back and, and, and review something that we talked about a little bit earlier. And this is when we're talking about the music versus the dance. Okay. A couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that Josiah, and, and we, will, we will see this in just a second... When Josiah comes in to reign, he's a very young prophet. He's like eight, or king. He's like eight or nine. Okay? Uh, and when his father dies. And, and those in the king's court actually are going to stumble across uh, the Torah, the, the law that has been lost for a long time. And in excitement, they're going to kind of bring the law out. Josiah's going to make sure that it's read to everybody. So everybody's going to get to know the law again. They haven't been using it forever. Okay, They've had the temple but no scriptures, which is kind of weird. Uh, but remember, in their zealousness to try and make sure that the people live the law, they actually changed the religion. And they made it about that, that salvation and truth and, and everything would come by the law. And they begin, and this is where the Pharisees and the Zealots and what we call the Deuteronomists came to power and they made sure that you were going to live the law. Well, how do we know we're doing on the Sabbath? We're going to tell you how many steps is breaking the Sabbath, how many steps is not. How do we know about the dietary law? If you eat this but not eat this. And they started to become very judgmental and rigid and the, and the Deuteronomists were very hardcore rigid about all of this. We'll tell you how you're doing. Okay? Now, for how many kids, even in today's church, when they hear, when they're doing the dance, 
but not hearing the music, how often does the church sound like this? And I will tell you, what are we supposed to do on Sunday? You will do this, you will do this, you will do this. Okay, we get caught up in those kind of things. Or it's amazing how often you may, some of you may have grown up in church, in, in families like this, where the, the church was never a joy. The church was a, a bit of a hammer. We joked about the shirts that says, I'm Mormon, I can't. Well, it's like, that was a really kind of sums it up. What's the church? It's a series of can'ts, all the things I can't do and I'll get in trouble if. Or how often do, do parents end up saying something like, as long as you're under my roof, you will. Well, I don't want to go to church. Well, as long as you're under my roof, you will go to church. Comma. And the, the, the meaning to that that sort of sits out here. And once you're not, you won't. And they don't. Yeah. Yeah. We can win we can win a lot of battles and lose the war. And yep, they were sitting in church but become so resentful of the church that again it loses the music, it loses the joy of the gospel and it becomes a series of observances rather than what it is that we really need. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. I've always tried to help my kids understand the gospel but want it for themselves and make the choice themselves and never force okay. the issue. So think about Jeremiah for a second. So Jeremiah is now showing up in the 13th year of of, of uh, Josiah. Okay. What kind of atmosphere is he probably living under? He's like the prophet, right? And he's and the prophet is, he's coming in with the gospel and a true understanding, and he's going to run in not just to the up against the king, but against who else? The Deuteronomists and those that were on the rigid side of this. And he, so he's trying to teach them it's about the inner stuff and they're saying, no, it's about the outer stuff. Well, it's about Jehovah. No, it's about the law. And, and how long reaching is this? What, what about, remember Laman and Lemuel? Laman and Lemuel couldn't believe that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Why? They were prosperous, they were prideful, but... They were also keeping the law, weren't they? That's what the that's what the Jews kept trying to tell Jesus. We are righteous, and he's saying to them, "Well, it's you know, there's this and this." Well, no, you can't tell us we're wicked because we are. We live the law, and if we're doing the law, we're going to be saved in the bosom of Abraham. And he's saying, "No, you need to do this and this." And the, he got stoned. Even though this is somebody preaching the gospel, they wanted to kill him. Jeremiah was in the same boat. Other prophets were rising up against Jeremiah because he was trying to say it's an inner thing. And they're saying, no, it's an outer thing. That's what the Deuteronomists and the, who became the Pharisees and the Zealots were doing. Does that, does that make sense? There's this rigidness being imposed and Jeremiah's walking right into the firing range on this. Okay? Okay, so he serves under four kings. By the way, this is Michelangelo's Jeremiah. I guess if you were laying on the floor of the Sistine Chapel, you might see this. <laughs> he, he really was the poor man's prophet. He was rejected by other priests. The other priests are trying to kill him. Uh, because they're trying to enforce what the Deuteronomists and Josiah's court were trying to teach. And so he spends many years in prison. Every time he gets out, he starts preaching again. They throw him back in. And he's finally released by Nebuchadnezzar. That is, they're burning the temple and they're overcoming everything. And they find 
here's this prophet sitting in this prison and they send him out and he will then go to Egypt. Uh, we know that part. Now, it's after this that this is the, this is the place of myth and apocryphal stories. So let me just, I don't know if any of these are true, but I need you to know that these, that these stories are out there because it gives you the flavor of how Jeremiah is actually perceived. And it's a little bit about our own history as a country, believe it or not. <coughs> uh, here's what the, uh, anybody uh, originally from Ireland or went to Ireland or got connections to Ireland? Okay. President. I'm Irish. <laughs> Kiss me, I'm Irish. Okay. Well, you'll like this part then. You can probably even tell us. Okay, fun facts. Irish historians are unanimous that about 580 BC there arrived in Ulster a notable man, a patriarch or saint, Jeremiah. Accompanied by an Eastern princess, the daughter of Zedekiah and a lesser person by the name of Simon Barak, okay, who was uh, uh, Jeremiah's uh, helper. This party brought with them several remarkable things which Ireland's songs and legends cluster. These things were a harp. The money has David's harp on it. You wonder, what does that have to do with Ireland? Well, now you're about to find out. And a wonderful stone, the Stone of Destiny, uh, the Leofel, or sometimes known as the Stone of Schoon, as it named to be known in Scotland. Okay? And, and remember, we talked about this uh, a couple of years ago, that, that this, this stone, and this is a, a drawing of the coronation stone in England, the belief, the belief is this, that Jeremiah, when he left Egypt, took one of the daughters of Zedekiah, he went to Ireland, he brought with him the stone, and this stone is the stone that uh, Jacob laid his head on. It's that stone. Okay? And that this stone represent, and, and that the king and King David and, and others, these were the ones that had been... Uh, when they were coronated, they were coronated either on the stone or next to the stone. Whoever, the, the, the right of the kings was to connect to this stone that went back to Jacob. Okay? So this stone then was taken to Ireland. Then it was taken to Scotland. Then in Scotland, I think it's Longchamps that then captures it and brings it down to England. And all of the, all of the kings and queens, including Queen Elizabeth II current queen was coronated on this stone, next to this stone and it was only uh, a couple of years ago that it was taken back to Scotland, it's the stone of destiny but it is known but it is believed to be this stone that Jacob rested his head on and it was brought to the British Isles by Jeremiah yeah. Well that was kind of meant to, this is supposed to supposedly if you look at it, supposedly this, is the, this was the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. That it was supposed to be that, that stone. Okay? Alright, so... Uh, kind of a fascinating link to, to all of this. And by the way, um, uh, Cindy and I have uh, both been reading, uh, again, a, a good book called Rise to Rebellion. And it's about the story of... Uh, the revolution, and so it's all, and right now the, this book was all about the, the rising up in Boston and and the Boston Tea Party and and through the eyes of John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Paul Revere and those guys. Well, one of them was when they were having a hard time getting the Continental Congress to pull together and actually declare independence. Right in the middle of all of this comes along this little pamphlet that just sent the people in flames against the monarchy and it was Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And one of Thomas Paine's major points was the monarchy is not divinely appointed. Because we are, as we are English citizens, one of the reasons why you would never 
break from the king is that the King George who sat on the throne is the literal descendant of King David. That he is a divinely appointed king. And he can trace it back. And what Thomas Paine was trying to argue was, no, he's not. We can break with, we can break with this because he is not the heir to King David's throne. And one of the ways that, again, they go back and say he is the heir to King David's throne is because Jeremiah himself brought the coronation stone and they are descended from Zedekiah's daughter. How's our history lesson doing? You a little swimming so far? Cool. You just thought you were learning about Jeremiah. Now, okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does, because you're going to have the, the ball, and you're going to have the stat. It's like having, i got the sword of Laban, and I've got the Leahona. I mean, it, it's interesting. And when he approaches the altar, he has the ball in the right hand. Uh, he does. He yeah. And there were some that would say, when it says in Isaiah that kings shall be thy nursing fathers, we're, right, we're going to take care of Israel. That it was divinely appointed to England to be the one to save and recreate England or to the state of Israel because they were divinely appointed because they were the descendants of King David in the first place. How are we doing? Okay. One last thing, just as a parallel to this. So again, they're saying that the belief is pretty strong belief that says that the kings descended through Zedekiah's daughter. Now, can we think of anybody else that might, that might link their right to uh, rule through Zedekiah? Think of the Book of Mormon. The Mulekites. At the height of the battle of the Book of Mormon, we have two major groups, right? The king that uh, Captain Moroni's got a battle. Because on one side you have the free man, who it's about... Judges and voting and, and democracy and stuff. And we have the the king man. And the king men are descended from Zarahemla. And Zarahemla was a descendant of Mulek. Mulek was a descendant, uh, was the son of Zedekiah. Zedekiah. So in the same way that you would have kind of the English monarchy looking at this, the king men in the Book of Mormon are saying... We are the heirs to King David because we come through uh, Mulek to Zedekiah and then, and then the kings back here. So we have a divine right to rule. So get rid of the judges and appoint us kings. Okay? How's that? Okay. 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 So that said... Let's, let, so, uh, how much of that is true? Who knows? But, but what we do know is that Jeremiah is the link. Uh, and so, let's turn to uh, Jeremiah 1. Because first of all, we have to get in call. Uh, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah... Hilkiah is actually one of those that's going to actually find the, the Torah in Josiah's court so that they can then read it again. Uh, and it comes in the 13th year of his reign. Now, look at, we get this beautiful statement in verse 5. The, the word of the Lord came unto me, Jeremiah. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now, that would be kind of comforting, wouldn't it? I mean, if you got called as, as Relief Society president, wouldn't it kind of be comforting to say, you know, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and I ordained thee to be the Relief Society president. Would that give you just a little bit more hope that maybe you know what you're doing? It would. But why is Jeremiah going to need this additional little um, 
uh, oath. Look at verse. Look at verse six. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Okay. I can't do this. Which reminds us that we hop over to Moses 6. We've heard this story before. Look at 31. This is Enoch. Enoch heard the words and he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord saying, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight and am but a lad and all the people hate me? <laughs> you ever been in a calling when you feel that way? <laughs> I am but a lad and all the people hate me for I am slow of speech wherefore am I thy servant? Why are you choosing me? Of all the people you could have chosen, you know. I remember having that feeling when I was called as a bishop going. President Harshaw, you lost your mind. I can't believe that. And, and and we go through this, don't we? I am I'm but a lad and all the people hate me. I, I they're better people. They're people that with better skills and tools. Why am I being called? President Jones, I, I'm, I'm interested. You had a chance to call bishops and all kinds of things. What kind of, how often would you get that kind of reaction if you're having to extend a, a heavy-duty calling to somebody to serve in something they feel very inadequate to fulfill? Pretty regular. Quite regular. And I can relate very well to how would you respond to that? How many of you have kind of gone through that experience? The calling comes. How about even as parenthood? You had kids. Did you, I remember having that feeling even as a parent, looking at at our daughter and going, "I don't know if we can do this." We've kind of been entrusted with this responsibility, and it's one thing if I screw up my life. It's another thing if now I'm entrusted with somebody else, and I could screw their life up a lot. Yeah. I just remember several years ago uh, when I was working at the temple, Elder Penninger came to the temple and he was visiting with us. And he said that, and each one of us had been called to the temple or to the temple or whatever, that it was a, a calling that came before we were born. Right. Yeah, but the Lord knows. Um, I don't know if I've ever really shared this, guys. When I was when uh, when Elder Christofferson was here, I remember I was getting ready to lead the music and state conference, and, and I'm up here, and Elder Christofferson sitting next to President Wilding, and uh, and I watched, and and the Jones walked in, and was coming down the hall, and I saw Elder Christofferson kind of give a little. <laughs> And I turned and saw a quick little conversation with him and President Wilding there. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that's about. And, and eventually we found out. Wow. So I haven't shared that. <laughs> but we have that, um, we have those experiences where, again, if I were to ask, is the Lord in a calling, whether it's a, even, as a, even as a parent or responsibilities in the church, is the Lord going to give us more than we can handle? Absolutely he does. He intends to give us stuff beyond our capacity and beyond our abilities. But then he also says, and I will uphold you by my Grace. by my hand. I will lift you up. 
But when we're in the middle of our callings and responsibilities and we're struggling and it's not going the way that we need it to. You ever, you ever walked out of a classroom situation and you think, nothing happened here. The kids were crawling the walls. The teenagers wouldn't listen. I tried to teach a gospel doctrine lesson and I went... And we have to remind ourselves that it says, you know, yeah, the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go all that I shall send thee, and wherever, whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. And then I think this is one of those moments, and this could very well be figurative. I would like to believe this is not figurative, that this is literal. That this calling is a face-to-face experience with the Lord. Because he, look at verse 9. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Now, picture that one for a second. If you're saying, I'm a lad and all the people hate me, I'm a child, I can't do this. And can you imagine if he then, if you're you're face to face experience with the Lord and he reaches out his hand and he touches your mouth and he says, I will take my words, I will put them in your mouth. Isaiah has something similar with the Lord. He says, take a hot coal and put it on thy mouth. I'm going to open you up. I'm going to enable you to speak with fire. Well, those those are the kind of things the Lord says, I will lift you up. I will carry you above yourself. Okay? Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee. And then we get 10. See, I have this day set thee over all the nations and all the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy. Wait a minute. This is just Jeremiah. He's preaching the gospel. How is it that this Jeremiah, with the words of God in his mouth, would root out, pull down, destroy, and throw down? How would that happen? Right. To very humble people. Okay. Yeah. 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 That he means to tear down everything. And kind of rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, and then I will plant the right thing. Okay? Do we generally think of picture prophets as those who tear down, destroy, rip up, throw down? They're just nice guys saying keep the commandments. They do pull down old ideas or old notions or and set the record straight. This is how it should be. So that's how they would pull things down and throw okay. them in. Okay, so they're going to they're gonna put that out there. And then, remember, we, we've talked about, uh, remember uh, Cecil B. DeMille throwing in his little comment at the beginning of the Ten Commandments that says, uh, people do not break the, the commandments, they only break themselves against them. So, and, and we're going to, the prophets are going to put it out there. Then it's up to us if we want to destroy ourselves against it. But in this case, if they didn't, if Jerusalem, because remember, when, jo, when uh, Jeremiah starts preaching, how far away is Jerusalem from being leveled and this great and magnificent temple being burned and brought straight to the ground with no stone upon another? We're talking just a matter of just a couple of decades. They're really, really close. And here comes this prophet that's, that says, I'm just but a lad. I'm, I'm kind of small. He's going to say things, and, and if they don't follow it, that nation will be pulled down. Wow. And then he's going to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, uh, A rod of an almond tree. Uh, and then verse 12, Thou was well seen. I will hasten to perform it. I will plant something different. Now, by the way, those in Ireland, we go back to that Irish kind of thing, they look at the last line of verse 10, 
They say to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. And they go, yep, in Ulster. In Ireland is where he did the planning. Okay, and, and a new nation formed with a new line of kings. So they kind of use that as a, one of those things. Okay? Alright. So there, there's, our, there's our calling on that. By the way, it is kind of a, I remember uh, very clearly, uh, I think the effect it had on my son, where uh, when, when he was younger and President Hinckley, this is in 95, President Hinckley has been called as, as prophet and uh, uh, President Hunter has died. And we were trying desperately to get down to the tabernacle. Uh, we were living uh, in Utah for a little while. And we were trying to get down to the tabernacle to be there for the solemn assembly. It's before the conference center, obviously, and you just had to get into the tabernacle. And, and we stood in a long line, and then it became very apparent um, that we weren't going to be able to get into the tabernacle for the morning session, the solemn assembly, but we would at least be able to get there in the afternoon session. Um, and my son was really disappointed that we weren't going to be able to get in for the morning session. But what a great experience that was at that point to be able to uh, as we sat there in this long line of, of, of people just sitting there waiting to get in, and then they started asking for everybody to sustain President Hinckley. And I remember watching my son just kind of proudly stand up, and you know, and he's not very old, and he just gets a chance in the middle of the tabernacle, or the temple square grounds, just to raise his hand. And I support this guy, this humble little man that has now been called. And we get to be able to, to sustain him. Well, the beautiful part about when prophets are called is this sustaining process is there. And we get to step up. And when we sustain, we're not voting, are we? We are sustaining. We're saying, I will do everything in my heart to follow him. And every prophet since then always talks about the fact they feel the prayers of the people lifting them up. All right? So I believe that that's part of what Jeremiah would have experienced is that sense that those who were praying for him. Elder Holland. A memorable, a memorable account of the power of inspired teaching comes from the life of the prophet Jeremiah. This great man felt the way most teachers or speakers or church officers feel when called. Inexperienced, inadequate, frightened. Ah, Lord, he cried, Behold, I cannot speak, for I am but a child. But the Lord reassured him, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee. Therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them. So speak unto them he did, but not initially with much success. That should be comforting to us that are walking out of a primary class where, where uh, four little uh, ADD little boys are bouncing all off the walls and you're wondering, I was just trying to teach about the Savior and I couldn't even keep them in their chairs. This is an utter failure. I can't believe they'd call me. Things went from bad to worse until he was in prison, made a laughing stock among the people, angry that he had been so mistreated and maligned. This is true. Jeremiah vowed, in effect, never to teach another lesson, whether it be to an investigator, primary child, new convert, or heaven forbid, 15-year-olds. <laughs> there is a point in all of this, and here's this humanness, and, and this should be so comforting to us. There's a moment when Jeremiah goes, I'm done. I'm failing even though I was you know, set apart in the pre-mortal life, I'm screwing this up. I'm done. I'm finished. I will never say another word. And tell me you haven't had that same experience. I will never give another talk again. I will never teach another lesson. I will never, 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 never. Never, never. Yeah.
I will not make mention of the Lord nor speak any more in His name, the discouraged prophet said. And he does. See, I think we want to put these prophets like they walk on water from the moment that they're born to the moment they die and they never have down moments. Except for Elijah underneath the uh, juniper tree who wants to die. Or Jonah, who thinks they should be fried. Yes, exactly. There is, wait a minute, there are those guys. Yeah. Or Joseph Smith, who says, Oh God, where art thou? And I'm having a hard time. Other than those guys. <laughs> I will not make mention of the Lord, nor speak any more in His name, the discouraged prophet said. But then came the turning point of Jeremiah's life. Something had been happening with every testimony he had borne, every scripture he had read, Every truth he had taught, something had been happening that he hadn't counted on. Even as he vowed to close his mouth and walk away from the Lord's word, he found that he could not. Why? Because his word was in my heart as a burning fire up in my bones. And I was weary with the forbearing, and I could not stay. There's the problem. I think that's the struggle for a lot of people that leave the church, by the way. I should be able to just walk away from that stupidness and not have to do anything with that church anymore. And I'm just going, oh, my parents were so mean to me, and the bishop was, oh, 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 and I'm out of here. And Joseph Smith did what? And Brigham Young was... And but the fire in the bones doesn't go away very easily. And just keeps prodding them. Remember having a lady sit in my office a number of years ago and, she, and I said, so who are you? So tell me about you. She says, I'm a recovering Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> recovering? I'm a non-recovering Mormon. What's the difference? She says, well, I grew up in the church. I was taught and everything. And, and she says, and now I'm recovering. I said, what does that mean? Well, I'm trying to leave it. I said, well, leave. You know, write a letter, walk away from the church, to, you know, disappear from the records of the church. She says, well, it's not that easy. They keep showing up. I says, oh, I know. But you can write the letter. They'll quit showing up. She says, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's inside you. And I can't, and it's like, I guess like being an alcoholic, you know, it just keeps showing up. <laughs> uh, you're full of baloney. <laughs> I said, the problem is you had a testimony that was true and you can't walk away from it. No, that's not it. No, that wasn't it. I like this idea. His word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. Remember that talk that Glenn Pace gave at a conference some years ago? He, he was the managing director of welfare. And he, was, and he told, I think he did it in conference, he said how uncomfortable he was. He used to like to go to BYU football games and move the holler and take his family get out on the front. He says, then I had to wear a suit and tie and sat up with the general authorities and he sat there like this. And like, he says, it wasn't near as much fun. <laughs> I don't know. I've sat at a number of BYU games and watched L. Tom Perry right across from us on about the second row of the basketball game. He's, he's kind of a wild man. <laughs> L. Perry, he'd be hooping and all and having a great time. That's funny. One other man that I, I know uh, looked at this and it was uh, 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 not Wycliffe. John Tyndale. Who taught, William Tyndale. William Tyndale, as he's trying to translate the Bible into English so that, even, that, so that even the common man can read it. And he talked about being pushed to do this work as a fire in his bones. Which is really a good description, isn't it? Isn't that the music that we're talking about that goes with the dance? If, you know, if that fire's in your bones, how easy is it to dance? Man, it just, it just gets you going. If there's no fire in your bones and now you just got to dance, whew, that's hard work. 
Okay. Now, here comes this. Uh, Jeremiah, like so many of the prophets here, is going, to, just like Isaiah, is going to be very poetic in the way that he writes. And the Lord is going to be very uh, parable-like in the direction that he gives. It's done in a way that paints images and pictures and it draws on the culture so that you really get it and you really understand. If Jeremiah were living today, he would probably have used different um, word pictures to describe the problem. But I, but I want to uh, I'll give you an example of this one. The Lord is trying to get him ready to teach the gospel here. Look at this. Verse 1. They say, they meaning the culture of the times, Jewish culture. They say if a man put away his wife, divorce her, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? And they say, shall that land or her be greatly polluted? Well, kind of harsh. In other words, what would it take for a man back then to divorce his wife? Just a bill of divorcement. And most of the time, the one that, I mean, because I know you've heard stories about that if she cooked a bad meal or something that he could divorce her readily. But more than likely, the number one issue for why a man might divorce his wife would be Adultery. Okay, that was a no. It was not like a no, like a no fault divorce. If she's been out committing adultery, you can do that, and it's understood. Now look. So look at the image that he's painting here. If a man put away his wife and she go from him and 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 marry somebody else, so just one, she just turned to one man and she married him. Shall that land be greatly polluted? But thou Israel. Thou Israel has played the harlot with many lovers. So it isn't like I just divorced you and you married somebody else. Or it isn't like I just divorced you and you took and you went and lived with some guy. Thou Israel has uh, played the harlot with many lovers. Like who? Egypt, Syria. Syria, Baal, idols. You, in other words, I am to be your husband and you have been playing the field. I need you to be loyal to me so that I can give you the covenants that come from our marriage and you keep walking away. Yet... In spite of all of that, look at the last line. In spite of that, this Lord says, Yet return to me. Please come back. The Lord hath said to me, Jeremiah, in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen which backsliding Israel hath done? Okay, now let, let's stop for a second. We've got to, got, to pay the, got to know your history here. At this point in what we now call Israel, are there two nations living side by side? Yes. There is Judah under Josiah, and they are centered in Jerusalem. And there is Israel, and they are in the north part of Israel and they are centered in, and they're led by uh, Ephraim up there and those are the ten tribes. So you got Israel we're talking about Israel, there's there and Judah is down here, the two separate nations. So, so during the reign of Josiah guess what happens to the ten tribes? They get captured and they get taken away, right? So what he's saying the Lord has said unto me, Jeremiah, in the days of Josiah the king, 
Hast thou Jeremiah and hast thou Judah? Guys in Jerusalem, did, did you just watch what happened up north? They were wicked, and what happened to them? They got, they got hauled off. They got conquered. Hast thou not seen what backsliding ten tribes of Israel hath done? She has gone upon every high mountain. Uh, and we know that from Elijah and everything, the mountains and the priests of Baal and everything those guys would do. And under every green tree, uh, all of the groves and things. And hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Didn't you watch what these guys did? You know, they were bad. And I kept saying to them, come back. They wouldn't come back. You've been watching. And then he says, and I saw... For all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Why would he divorce her? Adultery. Adultery with idols, adultery with Syria, adultery going after other gods. And what does he mean by, so I gave her a bill of divorce? What would that mean? If you divorce, if, if, you're, if you're in a house and you're going to divorce this adulterous woman, what happens? You can kick her out. You can kick her out. And what happened with backsliding Israel? She got kicked out. Did they lose their covenants? They didn't just lose their covenant. They lost their country. They, they, the ten tribes were taken away to the north. They, they were pulled out. They, they were conquered and they were, they were taken away. And hauled off in chains. Haven't you seen that? Didn't you watch what happened? Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not. But went on and played the harlot also. You're not watching what your sister did. Didn't you? See here's my experience. Generally if I, if I look at a family. It's one of these psychological things you just kind of count on. I was just having this conversation. I, in fact... Let me say it this way. I had, a, had a, a, a girl in my office the other day, younger, and she's, and she's really trying to be a good girl. And she's trying to do all the right things. And I watched her kind of over-trying. And I said, without knowing too much, I said, uh, did you have like an older sibling? Yeah, I got a daughter, or a sister, who's older than me. Is she kind of rebellious? Oh, she's way rebellious. Yeah, she's just like breaking everything. So I said, and so you're trying to do all the good stuff because your older sister did the bad stuff. Well, yeah, I can see how it broke my parents' heart, so I was trying to do the good stuff. I said, oh, you're the white knight. You're the white knight to the black sheep. Because so often when you get a black sheep in the family, there will come like almost generally right behind them. The next kid coming up is going to be the white knight. I will make my parents happy. They will love me. Uh, I won't break their hearts. By the way, I'll get all of the good stuff that my older sister didn't get because they're going to give me the car and everything they were going to give to her and I, they're going to be nice to me. But it's amazing how often that you get a rebellious child and then right underneath that will be this really good kid trying to offset that. True story? Yeah, it happens a lot. You can almost count on it. Okay? Um, and, but in this case... The treacherous sister, verse 8, Judah feared not, but she went and played the harlot also. Well, if Israel will do it, then I guess I'll do it too. Did Judah get the same fate? Yeah. They were, she just wasn't listening. Okay, I understand that. Thank you very much. No, Okay. All right. I, let's see. So, verse 10. For all of this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly. Meaning what? That she was fading a lot? Faking it. How would she be faking it? She's not listening to the music. She's just doing the dance. We're living the 
Torah. We're living the law. And he says, you're faking it. Remember when we were talking before about how they were supposed to, uh, in a jubilee year, they were supposed to let go of all of their servants, their med manservants, maidservants and everything according to the law of God so, they, so they, they set all of their servants free and then what do they do? the next day they bring them back in other words we're going to you know, it, it's like the, the, and I don't remember which law it is some of you who may understand Jewish uh, uh, observance is better there is a and I want to say it's Yom Kippur. I think there is one of those days where you're supposed to get rid of all of your stuff in your house. And generally what they will do, if you're an observant Jew, what you will do is take all of your stuff and you sell it to a neighbor for a dollar. Okay, I, I'm, I'm observing the law. I'm getting rid of my stuff. I sold it all. For how much? A dollar. Okay, and then I'll just hang on to the stuff and then I'll give it to you tomorrow. But tomorrow comes along and I buy it back. In other words, think I will I will keep it to, to me it's a little bit like uh, coming coming to, to fast Sunday and looking sad and, and maybe even bearing your testimony and, and everybody goes, Wow, what a righteous person. And then you go home and like cheat your neighbors. You know, and 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 do all of the and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do all of this righteous stuff. I attend all my meetings. I went to my bishopric correlation meeting. I was there, and then I go home and I cheat on my taxes or something. You know, it's like somehow we're doing the outward observances. We are doing the dance, but we're not listening to the music. And that's what he's that's what he's trying to say. You're doing this under the Deuteronomist. You're, you're living the law. You're deciding how many steps you can walk on the Sabbath. But you're starving my poor. And you're throwing Jeremiah in prison because you hate him. Well, that's feignedly. That is, you're, you're just not doing it. And you're not watching. By the way, who else do we know did this? It was your treacherous sister in the north. Where is she? Oh, she's gone. She got captured. I have divorced her. She's out of here. And by the way, it could happen to you and will happen to you. And we're about 10 years away, by the way. But in spite of all of that, look at, look at verse 12. Go proclaim these words unto the north. Anybody who might be left there, go proclaim in the north. Say, return thou backsliding Israel. Saith the Lord, I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. 14. Turn, O backsliding children, both sisters. Turn, O backsliding children. Saith the Lord, for I am married to you. And in Isaiah, he's going to say, I will not give you that bill of divorcement. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how long it takes, I will bring you home. Even though you have been adulterous and you've been out and you've done all these things, I will always bring you home. I, I think that's... Talk about the incredible grace of the Lord. In other words, how many sins can we do that kind of run Him off? How many things... This is like, he, this is one more. He's going to get rid of us now. And he says, I am still married to you. Meaning, you are still under my covenants. My, my love, my promises to you are still intact. Despite the fact that you keep going out and doing all this stuff. I still love you. I'm always impressed, by the way. Uh, I had, a, I had a, a wonderful sister a few weeks ago sitting in my office. And... Uh, Husband had had an affair, and and she was crushed, and she was hurting, and she was in pain. And I said, "How you doing?" And she said, "The hard part is that she says, tell me I'm not being stupid here." And the lion, she says, "Well, I've got a number of friends that just are just saying, look, dump this guy." You know, kick him out. He did this stuff. 
Kick him out. Get rid of him. And she said, uh, I'm watching him. He's repenting. I still love him. He's broke my heart. But I don't feel like I should be kicking him out. Am I being stupid for not kicking him out? And it was to your heart. And, and in this case, I says, is there a point at which he could have enough affairs or do some things that you would kick him out? Yeah, there's a point at which I would divorce him. But given what I know right now, what he's done, and the fact that he's gone to the bishop and the stake president, and he's working on it and everything, I still love him. And that's why it hurts. But I don't feel like I should be kicking him out. Do you? And I said... Bless your heart. You are you're the essence of love. And I think it's this spirit that says, I need you to do some things different, backsliding Israel. But as you do that, I will, I'm still married to you. I will bring you home. I just need you to repent. I need you to change. Now, there is a point at which you could do enough things that you might have to be gone. You might get hauled off into Syria. But he's going to say, "I want, I want to, uh, I want to bring you home." And then this, and look at the second line to the fourteen. How is he going to bring backsliding Israel, the ten tribes, and then ultimately this will happen with Judah? How is he going to bring them home? The next line says, "I will bring them home." How? Yes. One of, a na- one of a city, two of a family. I'm curious, have we got anybody here where you're the only, you're either the first convert in your family or you're the only member of your family who is a member of the church? Raise your hands. Raise them high. There they are. One of a family, two of a city. That's how Israel comes back. They got scattered. And then he reaches down into a family and he reaches into a city and he finds those whose hearts are changing and he brings them home. That is the gathering of Israel. Literally the gathering of Israel. And it's the return of the ten tribes. I believe that most of what's been talked about, the, they're coming out of the north countries and they're melting the highway and the snow and ice and everything. I think the snow and ice and the, stuff, and the pathway, I think that's in our hearts. The ten tribes are already returning. We're in the middle of it, guys. We are. And you're looking around. Where are the hands again? There they are. There's Israel coming home. In direct fulfillment of that scripture. I'll, I'll find them. I'll re- and there will be fire in your bones. And it won't make any sense. But you'll walk away from everybody else and come home. I think that's, that's amazing. If you go to a state conference, you ask the same thing. Be amazed. You know, it's probably a third. Okay. And if you do that, I will give you pastors according to mine own heart, and they shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's how it happens. Isn't that awesome? All right. Want to do? Want to mention one more as part of, uh, and then we'll, we'll be done. That is the. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, that's better. Okay. Jeremiah eleven. He's going to use one more image. He's used the image of marriage and divorce. Now he's going to do one more. Jeremiah eleven. The Lord called thy name, and he's going to give Judah and those that are righteous a name. A green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. Now, isn't it fascinating? This idea of this olive tree kind of keeps showing up over and over, doesn't it? Most notably, where's the biggest thing on the olive tree? Jacob 5, right? We get the whole allegory of moving these olive trees all over the place and they come back and we graft in tame branches and wild branches and then we bring them back and then one goes bad and he can't figure it out. And it's like this whole olive, olive branch thing. Okay. Well, he's going to call them the olive tree, 
And there's a reason for that. Because with noise and great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon the, the uh, tree and the branches are broken as Jerusalem is falling. Okay? Olive oil was used anciently for culinary, cosmetic, funerary, medicinal, and ritual purposes. Its most important use was to provide light. Mostly what olive trees do is provide light. Think about that one. Okay? Because we are, as you read this, I want you to picture each one of you as kind of an olive tree in the, uh, in the idea of what he's saying. This is Israel's, one of Israel's names, is the olive tree. Um, it provides the clearest, brightest, and steadiest flame of all the vegetable oils. In one of Jesus' last recorded parables, he prescribed a procession, remember, of young women, members of God's kingdom, going out to meet the bridegroom, the Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one, anointed with olive oil. Yeah. Uh, lamps were required for brilliancy and beauty. The oil for the lamps was, was symbolic of spiritual preparation on the part of members of his kingdom. Uh, those whose desire to participate in the marriage feast, which symbolized the coming of his glory. And we were to come to the marriage feast and bring with it our lamps filled with olive oil. And the purpose of us being there was to provide light in a very darkened world. We are to provide light. In early Israelite history, olive oil was used for sacred functions. Objects and persons set apart for the work of God, such as prophets, priests, and kings, were anointed with consecrated oil. We still do that? Yes, we do. Uh, with the Messiah, the Mashiach, uh, meaning the anointed one, the roles of prophet, priest, and king come together. And, and you can tell who they are because those are those who have been anointed. And with the purpose of providing life. Okay? Jesus, citing a messianic prophecy in Isaiah, remember this one, uh, told those attending the synagogue in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach. Now, again, I think that Part of, our, part of our responsibility here, ultimately, I love, the, I love this idea of being a consecrated people. And so he's trying to say to backsliding Judah, he's trying to say, I have married you, which means I have consecrated you. Okay, now let's, let's kind of pull all this together and then, then we'll kind of wrap up here. So what would we say to somebody who is struggling in the church, maybe with their calling, their responsibility as a mother, as a wife, as a husband, as a Sunday school teacher, as whatever. What do we say to those that are struggling with the idea that I don't have the ability to serve, I'm not powerful enough to serve, I'm not as smart as everybody else, I'm supposed to teach a class that's going to be filled with other adults who seem to know more than I do. I have to give a talk in sacrament meeting and I'm, going to, and I'm going to preach it to those that know more than I do and I don't know very much. What would we say to them? Use the Spirit to guide you. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Which is kind of shocking, isn't it? Because for all that time you can say, well, I'm still not sure why he called me. But if I'm called, therefore I am going to be lifted up. I'm going to be chosen. I'm going to be able to do more than I thought I could. Well, there's a, the Lord qualifies. Those yes. Those qualifies us How? Because we know we've got that. Who the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. Meaning, 
Yeah. He's going to provide the olive oil. He's going, to, he's going to provide that energy, and then he actually provides the light. Yeah? Well, I mean, he expects us to do our part to work. When I was a freshman in the early life, I was a gospel doctor, which had all this experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 See, I, I remember being at BYU as a recently returned return missionary, and I probably knew more than anybody that had ever known that ever walked those campuses. Because I'm a return missionary and I know my stuff. And I've come from the battleland of England, and you throw anything at me, I got you. And I look back and I think, what an idiot. <laughs> How, how little I really knew and how insufferable I must have been. Somebody should have just taken a stick to me somewhere in the first month. Well, then I got married and that helped. <laughs> On the humility side. So. No, I, I, think, I think that's the place that we're all in, brothers and sisters. And we'll finish with this. I believe that as we look at Jeremiah, we look at this guy that is very humble and yet, he is going to be called to the most difficult of tasks. And we're going to see much more of it next week, where at the front part of this is he's got Josiah, and, and for all of the rigid Deuteronomist, zealot, Pharisaical kind of stuff, they're still kind of trying to do the right thing, even though they're feigning it, and they're doing bad stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Now we're going to about get into the last couple of kings with Jeremiah, and now the kings are just out and out wicked. They're not even trying. And, and Zedekiah is going to end up dooming all of Jerusalem because he was supposed to be sucking up to Nebuchadnezzar and he's on the side trying to forge something with Egypt. And right in the middle of that, Lehi's got to take his family and get out of there because it's about to go bad. So I, I have a great sympathy for it. It's, I, I remember very clearly when my parents were called... Uh, to a very difficult mission uh, in Canada uh, on an Indian reservation, Indian Reserve. And, and after a year and a half of having the branch president who played hockey on Sunday and, and everybody, and they did, they just, it would look, there was no baptisms, there was no struggling, they were barely grateful to have the same people in the small little branch 18 months later when they went. They were just basically bending their plow. And at the end of that, my dad said, bless his heart, our job was just to make sure that we maintained the flag of the church for 18 months in that place. We're just trying to maintain the flag. And I think there are times that the most difficult callings we get in, we may not be called to move something ahead. We may be called to just kind of maintain the flag for a period of time, and that's hard when we don't see success. All these missionaries coming back from Europe with no baptisms after two years. They're just maintaining the flag sometimes, and that's hard. Brothers and sisters, this is a very human guy, and Jeremiah is one of our most beautiful prophets because you're going to get to see the, the, the pain and suffering and his eloquence in how he describes it. Um, and I pray that we can kind of draw some strength from him, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.